Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Tom Nichols, contributor to The Atlantic, and the star of the HBO hit Succession. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You did have a cameo on Succession. Yeah, apparently they decided to fill out a kind of pundit desk for the election night episode. And they did it at the last minute and they called a friend of mine who has Hollywood connections and the producer said, hey, we need a kind of middle-aged, curmudgeonly (laughs) right-wing white guy. (laughs) And my pal said, I've got your man. Of course, (laughs) the way Succession's filmed, a lot of it is all the people at ATN are just talking heads on a screen. So I had all of these crazy right-wing lines that I read, but I was a right-wing Republican analyst named Ben Stove. <laughs> I don't know why they named him, but he sounded suspiciously like Carl Rove. Mm, yeah, exactly. So I was there exactly. with my blue suit and my red tie and my flag pin. <laughs> and it was a blast. I got to watch Matthew McFadden and Nicholas Braun doing scenes, and I was able to watch a lot of the scenes from a distance, and some of them took place just a few feet from me. It was just the most fascinating thing. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I was really amused to see you. I didn't know this was coming, (laughs) and I laughed when I saw you. But also, I have to say, Matthew McFadden, who plays Tom in Succession, I happened to catch a little snippet of an interview that he did. And of course, he's actually British and speaks with a lovely British accent. And this is hilarious, but I confess it. When I was watching him speak in his normal voice, I thought, oh, he's far more intelligent and attractive than I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Shiv is British, too. I think she's Australian. Oh, is she? It's okay. Yeah. I still think that British actors do American voices better than vice versa. Well, then they sometimes they do them better than we do. I watched House for <laughs> years before I knew that Hugh Laurie was British. They are superior, let's just face it. Okay, moving on to the news of the week. We had two new entrants into the GOP primaries. We had uh, first Senator Tim Scott. And then, of course, we had Ron DeSantis made his much-anticipated debut. Some people are saying, Tom, that it didn't go very well for Ron DeSantis. Why don't you give us the highlights or your reaction? You know, I wasn't even going to tune in. I wrote a piece yesterday that said, this is just more of DeSantis trolling. He's decided that his campaign and the way he governs Florida is kind of one big own the libs exercise. And then I started seeing things flashing by me on Twitter from people that were watching that amounted to saying things like, oh my God, or holy crap. (laughs) And I said, I got to hear this. And of course, the first half of this thing was just a complete technical fail. You had Elon Musk and Ron DeSantis looking like a couple of incompetent clowns on the platform that Musk is supposed to be the boy genius that he was going to fix. But the worst part came when DeSantis and David Sachs and Musk started to talk. And it sounded like I caught a little bit of snark from Bill Crystal for this, but I said, it's like being caught in the Admiral's Lounge at Hartsfield and having to overhear a really annoying Zoom conference between some middle management guys 
that know you're listening and are being annoying on purpose. It was all kind of trolly to wonky to weird over and over again. And I couldn't understand, and I still don't understand, what on earth possessed anybody to think it was a good idea to trap Ron DeSantis on Twitter with Elon Musk's gigantic but very weird ego with David Sachs, who Kara Swisher had a great line. She referred to the bloviation of JV-level moderator David Sachs. And then special guest stars, Thomas Massey, Christopher Rufo. At some point, I just kind of walked away because it was so boring listening to all these droney, overprivileged white guys complaining about how hard life was. I think the first one they had was Jay Bhattacharya, who was going on about covid if this is a preview of the DeSantis campaign, they're just not ready. He could still win. Trump is still so off the charts in trouble. But on the other hand, I just thought, man, it was just weird. The word I keep coming back to is weird. Linda, Trump may be off the charts in trouble, but at the moment he's on the charts, the most likely nominee. So look, it's a long way till election day and anybody would be preferable to Trump. But I do have to wonder, why in the world would DeSantis want to be upstaged at his own announcement by, first of all, doing it on Elon Musk's Twitter, on his platform with his sidekick, David Sachs, who's, by the way, a huge Putin apologist, to take the uh, spotlight away from the candidate just strikes me as an incredibly beta move for a guy who says when God created a fighter, he created Ron DeSantis. I don't know. This was like the weirdest beginning of a presidential <laughs> campaign, certainly in my memory. And I've been around a long time, in case you haven't noticed. It was just so bizarre. I have to admit, I'm very glad to hear Tom give that little pricey of what happened because I couldn't listen to it all. Couldn't listen to it live because I was doing something much more interesting which was attending a lecture on the Torah and the American founding. It was really fascinating. Much more interesting mm. than listening to Elon Musk and DeSantis. <laughs> and oh, by the way, we're continuing to call him DeSantis. Apparently, he has gone back to the original pronunciation of his name, which is DeSantis. Not DeSantis, DeSantis. Yeah. Well, sometimes he says one and sometimes he says another. Well, not even have it down pat, which way to pronounce your own name. I sort of am sympathetic with that. I went through that when I ran for the U.S. Senate. My name, Chavez, my consultant said nobody could pronounce that and it sounded too foreign. So they made me call it what? Chavez. And, and for years, actually, even on national news, people with my name were called Chavez. So oh, anyway, but look, I think this whole rollout has been such a disaster for DeSantis, DeSantis. And I think that you hit it, the nail on the head. As awful as Donald Trump is, people can, in fact, stand to listen to him. He is entertaining. That's what I've heard, though. I don't think anybody on this podcast. No, what I know. Okay, we all right. Well, I listen to him. It just gives me AFib. So. But the fact is, he, in a weird way, he is more appealing than Ron DeSantis. DeSantis is just one of the least appealing characters out there in politics and why he decided to team up with one of the most unappealing human beings on the planet, Elon Musk, is beyond me. It just seems like such a boneheaded idea. And then to use a platform 
which maybe the people on who listen to this show, I'm sure they do. They're all on Twitter. I know some of the participants in the show are on Twitter, though Bill and I resist. But it's not where the average voter, I think, gets his or her news. Damon, one of the things about DeSantis, and there's been a lot said and written about his weird, almost spectrumy discomfort with actual human beings, and that his wife does all the human contact and he sticks to these stiff public statements. But one of the things that strikes me is that another weakness is that so while he's attempting to run to Trump's right, figuring that that's his lane, he gets so crazily online that he winds up using these acronyms and these expressions that are really only understood by maybe people like David Sachs. Or, I mean, he talked about the woke mind virus is basically a form of cultural Marxism, and he's going to go after ESG and DEI and the accreditation cartels up in Washington. That is not the kind of thing that the average right-wing voter is even going to get, right? It really did baffle me. At one point in the middle of this event, someone on Twitter commented on how DeSantis kept talking about ESG, ESG. And I said, what's that? And the person responded, oh, you have to be really online to understand that. And I responded, I spent 10 hours a day (laughs) online. I've never heard of this. So I Google ESG, environmental, social, and governance, which I take it is some kind of progressive leaning way of thinking in corporate speak these days, but the percentage of Americans, let alone like the percentage of the Republican base who will understand what that meant has got to be in the minuscule single digits. I don't want to go too far over the top and reading kind of the future into this just because I suspect no one's going to even be remembering or talking about this in two weeks, the way politics and our news cycle works now. But patterns are started, narratives begin, and the narrative of this launch is really just head-scratching. It's not only that instead of doing a speech in a big location with American flags and having it broadcast on all the cable networks and getting an audience of several million people, he did it on a platform that, first of all, could not handle even one million people. It crashed at around half a million. And so the number of people who were there listening at any given time never really rose above six or 700,000 people, which is like, as uh, I think Jonathan Last stated in, in one of the things he's written about this, like that's what CNN gets at 4 p.m. on a Tuesday. It is so insular, so ultra online. And then as you pointed out, so insular to kind of tech bro elites that it's as if his audience was Silicon Valley right-wing donors, Peter Thiel and David Sachs and Elon Musk, who were sitting right there. And and if this is in any way an indication of the way that DeSantis is going to talk and run and frame the issue agenda for his own campaign, then I'm afraid (laughs) we're likely to see a downward spiral from his uh, support. I mean, there's just no way that that is the winning 
path to victory. And then you have to ask, like, why would he think otherwise? Really makes me wonder what's going on in his brain. Bill, one of the things that I just cannot get over is his willingness to seem like a sidekick again with Elon Musk. You know, he first ran for governor of Florida with the most obsequious ad I've ever seen, you know, instructing his little kids, you know, reading from Trump's book. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired and let's build the wall, etc. And now when he's supposed to be the main man, he puts himself in Elon Musk's shadow. Now, Elon Musk, very wealthy, one of the richest men in the world, also one of the most obnoxious adolescents in our national life, but I guess that wouldn't offend Ron DeSantis. But my colleague, Charlie Sykes, made an excellent point, which is he also gave a hostage to fortune here because by giving Musk all of this authority, what if Musk decides in a couple of weeks' time, you know, I actually don't think DeSantis has what it takes. I'm going to throw my support to Tim Scott. Then what does that say about DeSantis? I mean, it is baffling. Well, here are some thoughts. First of all, incorporating by reference all of the criticisms that have been uttered by my fellow panelists in the past 10 minutes or so, let me pile on some more. (laughs) Uh, This has not been a terrific three months. Ron DeSantis. And the official launch of the campaign was supposed to be the beginning of the turnaround and to lay the predicate for the campaign to come. But in order to lay the predicate, you have to state your case, not in a panel response to someone else. You have to make an organized case for yourself. And that is the function of the traditional announcement. Here's why I'm running. Here's why I'm different slash better, although you usually leave it to others to say that you're better than the others. Donald Trump doesn't, of course, but uh, that's part of his unique charm. And uh, he didn't, as far as I can tell, do any of that. If you'll permit me a sports analogy, this is like someone who is just burning up the base paths in AAA ball. and decided, along with many others, including seasoned scouts, uh, that he was ready for the majors. And then he comes up to the bigs and, you know, he can't hit, he can't field, he can't run, he can barely walk. I think the difference between being governor of Florida and being a candidate for the presidency is being dramatically revealed day by day. Let me just make a point about the primary process. The national polls don't matter because primaries are a sequential process where what happens at the first step affects what happens subsequently. And I think this Republican primary is very simple. If Donald Trump is not defeated by someone in Iowa and New Hampshire, he will be the Republican nominee. It's just as simple as that. The rest of the field's best chance to stop him is at the beginning. It is pretty clear, based on what I understand from the DeSantis campaign, that he's going to make a huge play for socially conservative voters in Iowa. If Trump beats DeSantis in a state where DeSantis is really going to invest a huge amount of money, a huge amount of time, huge amount of organization, I think he will be through. And Donald Trump will have been launched on a path to the nomination. 
that can only be deflected by an early primary victory by somebody else. So you can forget about the national polls, although they mean something. The question, as I've learned from bitter experience, is how someone who's not the front runner does at the very beginning. Tom Nichols, feel free to respond to any of that if you'd like, but I have a different bee in my bonnet that I would like to share with you because you and I are both in the never Trump category. And one of the irritating things that we have seen, even from Nate Silver, but you see it all the time from the anti-anti-Trump brigades, which is if you were really sincere about disliking Trump, you'd get behind Ron DeSantis. And the fact that you're not doing so shows that you really want Trump again and so forth. I find this infuriating. It's so illogical. The fact is, the reason that I hung back, first of all, I, you know, there's a lot to dislike about Ron DeSantis, but beyond that, I was never convinced that he could take out Donald Trump because of his evident weaknesses. And I thought, there's no way in which, you know, the people at the bulwark or the people at the dispatch or Tom Nichols rallying around DeSantis is going to make a dime's worth of difference if the guy doesn't have what it takes. I do want to respond to something Bill said, but let me go back to the first point that Bill raised. The other problem with Ron DeSantis is that if the Democrats hadn't foolishly nominated Andrew Gillum, Ron DeSantis would be a footnote right now. The notion that Ron DeSantis is this giant slayer because he narrowly defeated what I think was a pretty weak candidate the first time around, and then even though he won by a big margin the second time around, as somebody, I think it was, again, we're name-checking JVL here, not Jonathan Last, he ran, other statewide candidates actually ran three or four points ahead of DeSantis in Florida this time around. It became the accepted wisdom that DeSantis, this placeholder, was the Trump killer. And the problem with that is that you actually have to hear the man speak. And the minute he steps out there and he does all that kind of weird stuff, imitating Trump and that nails on a blackboard voice and the weird otherworldly affect, then this comes back to your point now, Mona. A lot of us looked at and said, yeah, this probably isn't the guy. But you know, the response from the anti-anti-Trumpers is such bad faith because you say, look, Ron DeSantis isn't a very good candidate. And their answer to you is, well, not with that attitude, little mister. You know, it's like he can't beat him as long as you're not going to be on board. But what they really mean is that they want to be able to make the charge. And there are two really just, you know, childishly bad faith charges. One is that you and I and Charlie and every other Never Trumper, we want Trump. Like, he's good for us. Like, if Donald Trump gets reelected, like, I have no real interest in the future of my country. If Donald Trump gets reelected, I'll get, like, a bonus at the Atlantic or Oxford will up my royalties on my last book or something. And this is just stupid. These are people who just don't understand how any of this works. And always forget that if any of us were really interested in the money— as Matt Schlapp proved, the smart thing is to jump on the Trump chain, not jump in front of it. So, and the other thing they want to be able to do is to say, because you don't support DeSantis or because you're not plumping for him as the only alternative to Donald Trump, you're not really a conservative. You're just another Democrat criticizing Republicans. And it's, I'm sorry, but especially given through the whole Democratic primary where I took a lot of bats for things I said about Kamala Harris and Castro and Bill de Blasio, people who write about politics, write about politics. We're not on your team. We're not your cheerleaders. And I think 
the anti-anti-Trumpers, and I know we've all talked about this before, they know that they sold out. They know that they chickened out by saying, well, I don't support Trump, but, right, dot, dot, dot. I don't support Trump, but I'm not going to vote against him. I'm going to vote third party. I'm going to not vote. I'm going to still be part of the Republican faithful, even as the party kind of spirals into this cult of personality. And they really want to believe that everybody is as morally ungrounded as they are. And so that's a big part of that accusation. So you're not supporting DeSantis because you don't really have any principles and you're just in it for the money. And you just sit there and listen to this and say, this sounds an awful lot like projection, man. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'm just going to climb up on the soapbox just for another minute and just say that all of the establishment conservative organs who made their peace with Trump and eventually, as you say, plumped for Trump, They poisoned the atmosphere to the extent that they taught the electorate to accept everything from Trump, to make excuses for everything from Trump, to doubt any news source or any outlet that wasn't pro-Trump, to the point where they now say, gee, why is it so hard to get rid of this guy? You know, and they fantasize that they can do it with Ron DeSantis. But the fact is, they created the environment that has made Trump so hard to dislodge. And how come you won't support us in supporting a guy who's almost as bad as Trump? That's right. You hate vanilla. Well, how about French vanilla? How about vanilla bean? No, I I don't like (laughs) vanilla. But, you know, as you said, and as I wrote just yesterday, look, the country would be better. I say this not as a partisan, not as a member of any party. It would be better for the United States of America if Donald Trump were never on a political ticket anywhere in this country. His record of supporting violent sedition should have rendered him completely ineligible for any kind of federal office. And so I would be more than happy to see anybody on that ticket but Donald Trump. But that doesn't mean that after years of the rationalizations at places like National Review and the attacks on people like you and me over the years, that now it's like, okay, it's time for you to get on the team. Like that scene in um, Full Metal Jacket, son, come in for the big win. No, that's not how it works. We didn't create this indestructibility of Donald Trump. We warned you about it. We told Mm. you not to do this. And to somehow accuse us of acting in bad faith, I think really is just a guilty conscience externalized onto the never Trumpers at this point. Thank you for that. Okay, Damon, I want to come back to you on one other issue, which is there's been some suggestion that DeSantis is going to enter the race. He's not going to attempt to dislodge Trump. He's just going to coast along, not attacking Trump, just on the hope that the next indictment or two will disable Trump so badly or a health situation or something will disable Trump so badly that he'll just be standing there and he'll be the next guy. And so he'll benefit from all that. But has anything that you have seen in the last six months changed your initial evaluation that the indictments helped Trump? No. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly, obviously, there are always many causes in the world. But, you know, all you have to do is go 
to real clear politics, even if you don't love the way they aggregate their polls, you know, unlike Nate Silver's 538, where he like adds all kinds of mathematical weights and and so forth to various pollsters based on their previous accuracy in order to come up with their aggregate. All real clear politics does is if there's a new poll, they just kind of dump it in there, weighted equally with all the other polls. And so it's not a sophisticated, but it gives you a rough view of where things are. They have their chart up now that they do every cycle where they have the line graph of where everyone's going and where everyone, how everyone was doing. And if you look at where Trump was and where DeSantis was in March prior to Trump's uh, indictment in New York, Roughly, Trump is, you know, he's coasting along at a certain level, like in the mid-40s. Meanwhile, DeSantis is coasting along around 30%, you know, 10 to 15 behind Trump. Then Trump is indicted on March 30th. April 1st and 2nd, DeSantis starts to sink and Trump starts to shoot upwards so that we're now... Trump is in the mid-50s and DeSantis is at 20. I mean, many causes in the world, you can't just attribute it all to the indictment, but I would say there aren't a lot of cases in politics where you have such a clear change of fortune and it tied to a date like that. The one recently that reminds me of a little bit is Biden being above water and doing pretty decently above 50% in his approval rating until the hapless withdrawal from Afghanistan in mid-August 2021, where you see him start to capsize and he's never recovered. He's stayed down. So we can't extrapolate about the future of how things are going to go. But anyone who is banking on their presidential campaign on the basis of assuming that some later indictment is going to sink Trump is really just making a leap of faith. There is no empirical evidence so far to prove it. There's all kinds of moral evidence to prove it in the sense that every fiber of my being as an analyst of politics until Donald Trump would have convinced me, of course, if the candidate for president is indicted for a (laughs) felony, they're going to go tank. They're going to go like off the rails and be gone and a non-factor in about five days. But given the way Trump's bizarre populist approach to politics and his relationship with and ability to manipulate his voters and mesmerize them, everything about that told me that things were actually much more likely to work in reverse, that he's reversed the polarities. And then we got our little run through this at the end of March. And so far, that has confirmed my suspicion. We had a beta test. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean don't indict him. I mean, like if if Fulton County, Georgia has evidence and they think they can actually make a case to try and convict him for trying to get Brad Raffensperger to throw the election to Trump, then they should throw the book at him. I have much more ambivalence about Jack Smith and the federal cases that I've talked about before. But if you just want to think in terms of what is the political consequence of this going to be, I mean, maybe like what suddenly people are going to say, all the Trump voters are going to be like, well, you know, when Alvin Bragg does it, that makes me love Trump. But when Fulton County turns on him, no, that That definitely makes me reconsider. I just don't see how that happens. 
Okay. There was one other candidate who formally announced Senator Tim Scott. We've also had a video put out by Glenn Youngkin, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who had until now said he was not actually going to run. Now he seems to be toying with it again. And Chris Sununu of New Hampshire. So, and of course, Nikki Haley is already in. Asa Hutchinson is already in. Does anybody on the panel want to comment on any of those people before we turn to the debt limit? I will just say one thing in response to Damon. I'm going to hold fast to the idea that the law matters and lawbreakers get punished in some way. So I do think that certainly if Trump is the nominee and he's under indictment and under indictment, not just in New York City, but perhaps in Georgia, and I think most importantly by the feds, I think there's no way he'll become president. But I also think that part of the problem is we haven't had candidates other than Asa Hutchinson, who's in, who've been sort of outspoken in speaking against Trump. And I sort of see that turning around if somebody like Chris Sununu gets into the race. And if Chris Sununu decides to run, I think he will more aggressively take on Trump. You can't beat Trump by trying to just play to his voters and ignoring the terrible things that make Trump unfit to be president. And so I'm still hoping that there will be some opportunity during the primaries for a Republican candidate to get out and make his or her case why that person should be elected, but also why Trump is absolutely unfit to be president of the United States. If it doesn't happen and Trump is the nominee, I think he will lose to Joe Biden or anyone else who ends up being the Democratic nominee. Okay, one last question for Bill Galston. Some of us have fantasized about a kamikaze candidate getting into the race for the pure purpose of going after Trump. Because let's face it, it is a suicide mission. There's no way that you can alienate the 30 or 35 or 50, however, whatever the size of Trump's hardcore base is in the party and still expect to win. And so people are fantasizing about two possibilities. One is Chris Christie and the other is Liz Cheney. Your thoughts? If anybody is going to fill that role, it's Chris Christie. He is prepared to do it. Indeed, he's itching to do it. And he may deny that he plans to strap on a suicide vest and blow himself up along with Donald Trump. But I think that, realistically speaking, that would be his role. One other point while I have the floor, do not rule out the possibility that someone other than Ron DeSantis could finish first or second in Iowa. Tim Scott, for example. And if Tim Scott were to come in second in Iowa, he would be propelled immediately into the national spotlight. I have some personal experience with this kind of jet propulsion out of Iowa. It's happened more than once to the detriment of front runners. And so I think that option ought to be put on the table. I have a feeling, I can't prove it, that there are a lot of social conservative Iowans who would feel really good about casting a vote for Tim Scott. All right. We will leave the campaign there for now and talk about the debt ceiling fight, which is now, of course, coming down to the wire. 
Janet Yellen says that by June 1st, the X date when the government really does run out of money to pay its bills and would be looking at default for the first time in our history. So Tom Nichols, arguably the case is made, and I I have some sympathy for this, that President Biden should have pivoted. I mean, when Kevin McCarthy, against expectations, held his conference together and passed a bill that would raise the debt ceiling with, you know, all of their priorities. He should have, at that point, seen the writing on the wall and negotiated because, because, even though the polls are kind of all over the place, and Bill will enlighten us about that in a minute, it's always the president who is going to be blamed for dysfunction or for some sort of a catastrophe in D.C. Uh, The subject that I was dreading that we would get to, because this is the Kobayashi Maru test. This is the Star Trek no-win scenario. Because you're right, the president will always get the blame for things that go wrong with the economy. We just went through a period where the president was blamed for high gas prices during a war with an oil-producing country in Russia. But to now kind of in hindsight say Biden should have pivoted, I'm not comfortable reverse engineering that because part of the problem with this conference is, again, the Republican Party has become a party of trolls. And there is no policy here. There is just bait and red meat to the primary and to the base voters. And one thing that Joe Biden, I think, is still wrong-footed by is how fundamentally unserious all of these people. Yeah, but they won the House. They did, but by a tiny margin, including such erudite figures as George Santos. This was not a mandate. This was not a landslide. And Biden could well argue that what happened in 2022 was actually more of a Democratic mandate, if anybody had one. But I get your point that in the end, they can still pass these bills. They can still do what they're going to do. But I think everybody's still in denial that these people are so reckless that they would destroy the credit of the United States and plunge their own voters, because this is something we keep leaving aside. If this happens in the United States, this moves us into a recession, the kind of people who vote for Republicans more than anybody else, the people that in red states that are dependent on the kind of economic progress and economic movement that is more important to them, I would argue, than people who live in the cities who have a buffer in a way, at least upper income folks, they're going to plunge their own voters into misery along with everybody else. And I think there's a part of official Washington that just says nobody is crazy enough to do that. No one is destructive enough to do that. Even I have a normalcy bias about this right now. There's a part of me that just says, you know what, Kevin McCarthy's terrible coward, (laughs) but he's not going to do this. And yet here we are. Bill, their own voters might be thrust into economic crisis by this, but that will be okay with them as long as Biden gets the blame, arguably, right? Well, to begin at the end, you referred to an article that I published with Brookings. And at the end of the article, I said that at least since the New Deal, rightly or wrongly, presidents will be held responsible more than any other single actor in the equation uh, for the condition of the national economy. I've seen no reason to revise that sentiment. And indeed, I was fortified in that sentiment when Joe Biden himself uttered it 
during a press conference that he gave at the G7. He acknowledged that if the economy tanked, that he would be blamed. What he didn't recognize, I think, or it certainly is not stated publicly, but I think he may not recognize it either, is that that is a component of the asymmetry of bargaining positions between the two political parties for all sorts of reasons. He has more to lose from the failure of the negotiations than the Republicans do. The Republicans, to put it simply, have the bargaining advantage because they are prepared to walk away from the table if they don't get a deal that pleases them. And they're willing to walk away from the table because they simply do not believe that the consequences of, you know, of breaching the debt ceiling would be as serious as official Washington on both sides of the aisle represents it to be. They genuinely believe, and the jury's out as to whether they're right or wrong about this, that the Treasury is palming the ace, that they have a plan for prioritization that would involve turning over the debt and sending out social security checks and then doing whatever else they can with whatever money they have left over, that it will not be a catastrophe either for the economy or for the Republican Party. I'd make one other point, actually two other points. First of all, the Republican position has been strengthened. This is a point the Republican pollster David Winston has been making, strengthened by the link that has been established in the public mind between the level of spending on the one hand and the level of inflation on the other. Whatever economists have to say about that linkage, a majority of Americans now see it. And so the party that is seen as wanting to cut spending has now the advantage of being seen as the anti-inflation party. It's another strength for the Republicans and weakness for Democrats and president. And finally, let's not forget that if there is a deal, it needs to get 218 votes somehow. And a majority of those 218 votes will have to come from Republicans. And there is some speculation, however, that 75 or even 100 Democrats may be needed in order to get to 218 if enough very conservative Republicans are unhappy enough with the agreement to vote against it. So that's the lay of the land as I see it. And I think it leads to two options. Option one is no deal. And option two is a bad deal. There will be no good deal coming out of this process. So Linda, if Bill is right, and basically the Republican GOP in the House holds the whip hand here, what are Biden's options? What do you think he should do? Well, I think what Bill has described as the old game of heads I win, tails you lose. The Republicans are going to win either way. In this case, they'll either win outright by actually forcing some changes in spending, some of which I happen to agree with, or they'll win by losing by there not being a debt ceiling and Biden being blamed for that. I think that Biden really has no choice but to make some significant cuts. And I don't happen to think Americans are wrong in thinking that there is a tie between government spending and inflation. It's not the only explanation. There are others, some of which we've talked about on this show, some of which I favor, like the fact we don't have enough workers and we don't let in enough immigrants to take jobs, to offer competition and keep wages at a sustainable base. 
But I think there are going to have to be some very significant cuts. And the danger is going to be, as I think Bill rightly suggests, certain accommodations are made. It's going to make progressives within the party very unhappy. And I think Biden is in a tough spot there because not only are we talking about the debt ceiling, we're also talking about the election. They're not going to have a choice in whom to vote for come the general election, but they could stay home. And he does have to worry about that. I would hope that at the end of the day, Biden does what's right for the country. And that means coming to an agreement and getting a positive vote on the debt ceiling, even if he has to swallow things that he and the progressive wing of the party do not like. Damon, do you think that come 2024, let's imagine Linda's right, and and that he does have to make significant concessions and that progressives are angry and alienated. Do you think that if it came down to the election that they would, which is still some distance away, that feelings would still be running high of betrayal and so forth and that they would stay home? Or do you think by then there'll be so many other things to consider, the possibility of a Trump redux or the abortion issue or other matters? What do you think? My general sense is that it's not likely to matter that long from now. I said earlier that, you know, we're going to forget about DeSantis's flubbed launch two weeks from now. Even if things on the debt ceiling negotiations just kind of drag on and on and we skirt default for a long time while the Treasury keeps pulling those extra aces that it has hidden up its sleeve out and we kind of keep muddling on, even if it tilts into recession, then then the recession is what will be hurting Biden, not directly how the debt negotiations played out. So yeah, I tend to think by the time we get to the November 2024 election, there's going to be an awful lot of stuff around about the threat of whoever the Republican is winning, the threats to democracy that would be represented by that. Although I will say, I do wonder sometimes when I put on my game theory hat. When exactly is it that McCarthy is going to agree to a deal? And I'm not sure I see the incentives lining up for that really ever to happen. But given how weak he is, how the deal that he reached with the true terrorists in the party when he ended up as speaker, you know, involve this very easy way for them to kick him out as speaker if they don't like what he does. You know, those are the folks who are never going to want any deal at all because they'll always think they can just extort more if they just push harder. And given that fact, is McCarthy ever going to stand up to them and say, no, pipe down, we're actually just going to end this now? Or is he going to forever be, you know, inclined to say, oh, wait a minute, Biden, you agree to everything I asked for? Well, actually, here's another thing. And then remember also, there's the other layer here that in addition to negotiating over this debt ceiling hike, there's part of that is the question of how long will it be raised? Will it be raised so that we don't have to go through this again until after the next election? Or is it going to be done again a year from now in the middle of the primaries or heading into the summer of 2024, where 
um, messy, ugly debt ceiling fight with threat of default is taking place far closer to the election so that then it would really potentially impact how the, the vote goes. I mean, if the incentives on the Republican side are above all else to make Biden look bad, then I don't know when this ever really ends. Do you imagine that if Biden were to make significant concessions and then go to the country and say, look, both sides have to give and I have given and they keep being intransigent, do you think he can flip the script a little bit? I don't know. Maybe. Let's Mm. see how long it goes. I mean, you know, on the one hand, I'm very encouraged and hopeful that actually Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, actually does have those aces up her sleeve because all the talk about how we got to get this done by June 1st, it doesn't really look like it's all that likely that we're going to get this solved before that deadline. I like to believe, and Josh Barrow had a very good post earlier this week talking about that very thing and comparing this situation to uh, an earlier debt ceiling fight in 1985, in which the then Treasury Secretary said similar things and then in the end was able to, you know, engage in the accounting gimmicks to keep the money flowing. The fact is that I think some of Biden's urgency that he would have to bring to the country is a function of him saying, we've got to get this done or else we're going to run out of money in default. If we go past June 1st and then June 10th and then June 20th and it hasn't ever happened, then it looks a lot like he's been bluffing. And so I just don't know. Okay. Tom, did you want to make a point about this? Yeah, two things real quick. One is that I agree with Linda that it is the conservative thing to be in favor of some of these cuts. But my concern is that the point is just to be intransigent, that there is no policy, that, and that there's always a danger in imputing too much policy coherence to this House conference, because these are not exactly... Uh, Damon was talking about 1985, and I was overcome with nostalgia for a time when serious people did serious things in government. The other is that I just wanted to foot stomp behind Linda's point <laughs> about progressives and For people on the left who may be listening, it is exasperating to me to have endless arguments with people on the left who say, why won't you use the word fascist? We're facing fascism. This is a national emergency. This is the most important time. But if Biden caves on a budget bill, I might stay home. (laughs) I think there is, again, there is an unseriousness about all of this. We're talking about potentially wrecking the U.S. economy in the short term. People who I think understandably are very worried about authoritarianism are nonetheless saying, well, but if my student loans aren't forgiven, then I'm going to be disappointed in Joe Biden. I mean, these are extreme times with extreme dilemmas that don't fit neatly into those historical categories. And I think Biden, to some extent, that constantly, as I said earlier, just kind of wrong foots Biden to to realize that these people aren't really serious about what they want cut, what they don't want cut. I think there are people in the conference who do, who are responsible but Damon's point is well taken that there are people who say, give a mouse a cookie and it will bite you, right? It won't even ask for the glass of milk. It'll just bite you and take it. So I just wanted to throw in those two points about the lack of policy and the startling fickleness of some progressives on this. Okay. With that, we will turn to our last segment, which is the highlight or low light of the week. Linda Chavez, start with you. Well, for once, I've got a highlight (laughs) and a low light to come. But the highlight is a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the disaster 
the humanitarian crisis that was going to occur when Title 42 was lifted as a result of the health emergency being over and people flooding in by the tens of thousands at our southern border. Well, it hasn't happened. And in fact, the numbers have actually gone down a bit. Now they're still quite high. It's still three to 5,000 people a day showing up at our southern border, but that's about half to a third less than what was showing up just in the days before. So that's my highlight. My low light, on the other hand, is on the same topic. It is about what's happening in terms of immigration. And that is a story that appeared in the New York Times this week. And it's called The U.S. Left Them Behind. They Crossed a Jungle to Get Here Anyway. And it is the story with pictures and videos. It is the story of Afghans who helped the United States when we were fighting a war in Afghanistan, who didn't make it out when the U.S. left the countries, hearkening back to our earlier discussion about the falling popularity of President Biden as a result of the way that withdrawal was handled. But it is the story of these people, including doctors, who have literally walked through the Darien Gap, a 60-mile stretch that is one of the most dangerous, treacherous places on the planet in order to try to reach our southern border, some of whom eventually made it across the border, some of them ended up in detention, and others basically almost hopeless in their attempt to become Americans. And I think it is not just a tragedy, I think it's a disgrace. Meanwhile, the U.S. Congress is not moving on the Afghan Readjustment Act. And even those people who we brought here and brought into the United States do not have a secure future here. And I think this is the real low light, not just of the week, but I'd say the low light of recent memory. Thank you for that. Okay. Damon Linker. Well, you know, I I have also, uh, like so many of us, had a lot of lowlights lately, and there are some doozies this week I would love to share with you, but instead, I promised myself I would find a highlight, and I have a really good one for you, and it has uh, also nothing to do with politics. Happy, everyone. This is actually a documentary that you can find on Apple TV titled Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. This is a documentary about... Actor, comedian Michael J. Fox, who was diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, I believe, in 1990. And uh, when he was at the peak of fame in film and television at the time, and then only announced it several years later to the wider world and has lived with it ever since. It's not only a great story, and if you're my age, which is Gen X, (laughs) early to mid 50s, Michael J. Fox was so ubiquitous when in our teen years years and early adulthood. It's a great nostalgia trip to see a lot of the old clips from the Family Ties TV show and Back to the Future, the film and other things. But his story is just really quite movingly told. And it's very amusingly told by interspersing clips from all of those films and TV shows so that, you know, when he's talking about 
when he was still in films and TV shows before he had admitted to the world he had Parkinson's, he would try to hide the muscle twitching by moving his arms in a certain way so that you wouldn't see that he was having the shakes. And they do things like intersperse clips from the shows showing him doing that in real time. And then they also do it in an amusing way. Uh, you know, if he talks about a real struggle, they show a clip from a movie where he's struggling with it. It's a combination of being very moving and touching and also very lighthearted and funny. So if you're looking for a really life-affirming, fun documentary to watch, I highly recommend still a Michael J. Fox movie on Apple TV. Okay, thank you. He was a very uh, prominent figure, even for those of us who were a little older than fifty. Um, yeah, you were you were you know, in your thirties when you were watching. When I was, you know, in my my teens. That's sort of the way we do it here on the podcast. Yeah. All right, Tom Nichols. Well, earlier Linda said the law still matters. Lawbreakers will be punished. And actually, I'd like her to call me once a day and just quietly say that to me at the end of the long day. And just law matters, lawbreakers will be punished. But my highlight: Stuart Rhodes just got eighteen years in federal prison, and the judge in his sentencing said, "You're a danger to our system of government." And I thought it was really a relief to hear that. And um, so that was a high point that there was no playing games with that sentence. My low light is from the media, and it sort of slid by in all the news. A couple of days ago, the ever-tasteful Greg Gutfeld decided to talk about how awesome it was that a 38-year-old teacher had a relationship with a 16-year-old student because the teacher was an attractive woman and the student was a boy. And I thought, this is now where we are with public commentary and his poor... And that's conservatism now? And that's conservative. That's exactly where I was going with it, Mona. Imagine on a conservative channel, a guy saying, uh, yeah, teachers sleeping with 16-year-old students. I, I envy. I'm not... He said, I don't condone it. I just envy it. I think it's great. And his flummoxed co-host, Kat Timpf, had to sit there. And she literally said, and I am quoting, again, I am vehemently against banging kids. Oh, yeah. And I thought, for a movement that is supposedly obsessed with family values and returning some decency to public life, this clownacy, the guy's almost 60 years old. Come on. At some point, the I'm the funny, jokey teenager throwing spitballs in the back of the room act has to get old. But this is ostensibly what conservative commentary is like now. And I just <laughs> didn't want that to slide by while these larger issues were, were taking place. Thank you, I think, <laughs> Tom. God, that's just, wow. Okay. Um, all right, Bill. Uh, moving right along, I have a really easy heuristic for this segment of the show. And that is anything that's bad news for Vladimir Putin is a highlight for me. And I have two of them. Uh, number one, uh, you now have substantial numbers of Russian nationals who are fighting on behalf of Ukraine, and they mounted a very embarrassing raid across the border into Russia to the Russian city of Belgorod, which is actually the capital city of the Oblast. And they eventually retreated after doing a lot of mischief. And it was a real humiliation, I think, for the Russian military forces and the Russian political structure and for Vladimir Putin personally. Highlight number two, 
No sooner had the Battle of Bakhmut been called for Russia, accurately, as far as I can tell, looking at the maps, than the Russian leaders fell to fighting each other. And it was serious, but it was also very funny. I mean, Progrosian, the head of the Wagner group, is a master of abuse. And he sent a mock birthday greeting to Mr. Shoigu, who's the Minister of Defense and has been for more than a decade, largely because he is so inoffensive in his dealings with Vladimir Putin, just the kind of patsy Mr. Putin likes. Mr. Prigozhin also managed to attack the Supreme Commander of the Russian forces, Mr. Gerasimov. And it's clear that Prigozhin now wants to get the heck out of Ukraine so he can go back to making money as a mercenary force in Africa. It is hard to make this stuff up. <laughs> and he also called for a revolution in Russia, didn't he? Well, that's true too. Yeah. I mean, he's as an idiot, he's getting more and more useful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. All right. Well, Tom Nichols used the highlight that I was going to use, but I'm used to that because, you know, that happens on this show. So, but I would just add a, a little addendum, which is if you all remember from the photographs that came out after January 6th, there was a particularly obnoxious guy sitting with his feet up on the desk in um, Nancy Pelosi's outer office. His name was Richard Barnett. He also was sentenced four and a half years. So that's really good. I also want to note whether it's either a highlight because he lived a wonderful life or a low light because he has passed away. But Robert Zimmer, the longtime president of the University of Chicago died this week. He was the force behind the famous Chicago Statement principles on the First Amendment and on academic freedom and free speech. And I'll just read a little segment of it. He said, it is for the individual members of the university community, not for the university as an institution, to make judgments for themselves and to act on those judgments, not by seeking to suppress speech, but by openly and vigorously contesting the ideas that they oppose. Indeed, fostering the ability of members of the university community to engage in such debate and deliberation in an effective and responsible manner is an essential part of the university's educational mission. It is a beautiful statement. It has since been signed on by many others around the country, but not enough it should be universal. He will be missed. Really a great university president, great American, Robert Zimmer. Rest in peace. And with that, I want to thank our guest this week, Tom Nichols, and thank our producer, Katie Cooper. Our sound engineer is Jonathan Siri this week with editing by Aaron Keene. And I want to thank my regular panel and, of course, our wonderful listeners. I did dip into the comments this week, and it almost made me blush. So thank you all so much. If you can't comment on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen, well, I mean, that would be great if you could do that. But also just please tell your friends, you know, and say the things that you said in those comments, that this is the kind of thing that we need more of, civil and uh, an intelligent conversation, if I may be so immodest as to call it that. All right, I'm just quoting, quoting our commenters. And with that, we will return next week as every week.